KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. A group of U.S. military veterans is lending help in Ukraine. Most of us were veterans who were working in tech until we were uh, ready to take this prime time. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Cold and wet weather is headed our way. What you can expect later in the week. This one's quite on the stronger side and it's going to make its way far enough south to really impact us here. And the research being done on Lake Tahoe's crystal clear water. Plus, a conversation with author Anthony Doerr. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. President Joe Biden made a surprise visit to Ukraine today, marking the one-year anniversary of the beginning of the Russian invasion. During the visit, Biden said we'll back Ukraine for as long as it takes... American government involvement in the Ukraine war has been mostly limited to providing weapons, training, and humanitarian aid. But a group of retired U.S. military personnel has been volunteering to help Ukrainian authorities disarm mines and other explosives. Corey Valancourt reports for the American Home Front. Across the vast plains of Ukraine, a small American nonprofit conducts training sessions with members of the National Police of Ukraine. That audio was provided by Bomb Techs Without Borders. They're a small organization started in a Bakersfield, California garage in 2018 by a former Army Explosive Ordnance Disposal Officer, Matthew Howard. Most of us were veterans who were working in tech until we were uh, ready to take this prime time and do the mission that we had always wanted to do. In February, it became abundantly clear that that time was right now um, I needed to focus on this full time. Within a week of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Bomb Techs Without Borders began a social media campaign educating Ukrainians about the dangers of unexploded munitions. That was something that we could do immediately while in the background we were spinning up and preparing to deploy personnel forward. The first person who went forward, of course, was John. He's talking about John Culp, a bomb disposal technician who served as a U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq. Culp retired as a special forces lieutenant colonel and lives in the North Carolina mountains when he's not on the battlefields of Eastern Europe. When the invasion occurred, I immediately wanted to do something. I'll be 70 in a week. Um, I'm, I'm not exactly the right guy to be carrying a rifle and sloshing around in in a trench. I really felt strongly about the wrong and the right of the situation. And and I just felt like this was something that was going to be very important to America and to the West. And um, I wanted to be a part of it. 
Culp found bomb techs without borders and has since been to Ukraine twice. As fundraising has grown, the group has rented apartments, bought gear, and started sending unpaid volunteers to Ukraine. Their mission is humanitarian, to educate and to build a sense of community among Ukrainian first responders. The group has a cordial relationship with the U.S. Department of State, says Howard, and devotes a significant amount of time to recording the types of munitions they find in a best practices guidebook. What they're finding are outdated and poorly maintained Russian weaponry, which means there's way more duds lurking in the ground waiting for civilians, soldiers, and disposal techs. Right now, Ukraine, I believe, is the most mined country. It's a huge problem. That's John Frucci of Oklahoma State University's Institute for Global Explosive Mitigation, which acts as a hub for various non-governmental organizations engaged in this type of work. There are a lot of organizations that are trying to help Bomb Techs Without Borders. They are really, you know, hustling to get things done. If we can add more of these people, we can solve some of these problems. Culp says those problems will be felt in Ukraine for years as air raid sirens, like this one in Kyiv in early December, continue to herald more Russian ordnance. As Matthew is fond of saying, you know, in 10 years, the Ukrainian EOD teams and EOD technicians are going to be the best in the world because they won't have any choice. I usually add to that the ones that are left because they're getting killed, and that's, that's all there is to it. Howard says that Bomb Techs Without Borders is always looking for people with technical experience and those who might be available for travel to Ukraine. But since they're all technicians, what they're really looking for is people with nonprofit fundraising experience. I'm Corey Valencourt in Maggie Valley, North Carolina. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Bob Woodruff Foundation. Following the wet weekend, San Diego County is set to experience some of its wettest, coldest weather of the year this week. Starting Tuesday with strong winds, then on Wednesday, temperatures are forecast to drop to the mid-40s overnight with wind and rain. The cold and wet combination could trigger San Diego's inclement weather shelter program. That means more shelter beds could be available to people experiencing homelessness. Joining me now with more on the forecast is Adam Roser, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. Adam, welcome to Midday Edition. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, so where is this cold weather coming from? So we have a big winter storm system that's coming in from the north. It's really coming in from Washington and areas to the north in Alaska and coming all the way down here. So it's going to impact a lot of areas in the west and the southwest here in California. So quite the cold anomalous system. So it's a pretty big one for the week coming up. And why are we seeing such a, a big drop compared to the average temperatures this time of year? Sometimes we get these systems coming in from the north and they can bring some, you know, really cold air with them. So this one's quite on the stronger side and it's going to make its way, you know, far enough south to, you know, really impact us here. Sometimes they stay more to the north. You know, you hear about the winter snow and Montana and all of that, but sometimes they do dip all the way into the southwest here. So we're going to see a lot of cold and wind with this as well. And I know the temperatures do something uh, completely different in Ramona than, say, maybe Oceanside or downtown San Diego. So can you break down what kind of temperatures we'll be seeing across the different parts of the county? Yeah, sure thing. So, 
yeah, with this system, it's, you know, it's going to be chilly at night, um, but, you know, slightly below average. But really, the big story is going to be during the day. It's not going to get very warm, especially starting on Wednesday and then into the end of the week. So, yeah, by Wednesday and Thursday, um, you know, we're mainly going to see highs, you know, 50 to 55 degrees for much of the valleys and the coastal areas. And then, you know, like places like you mentioned, Ramona will probably stick in the 40s for much of the day. Uh, Wednesday and Thursday, and then the mountainous areas will obviously be much colder. Um, highs will be in the 20s and 30s for much of the area. I mentioned that this combination of wet and cold uh, could trigger the city to open its inclement weather shelters. The threshold for that is anything below 50 degrees with more than a 40% chance of rain, which is in the forecast. How dangerous is weather, you know, at these temperatures for people experiencing homelessness? Yeah, especially um, with this first system, it's kind of going to bring in lots of wind, um, as you mentioned, later on Tuesday and into Wednesday. So it's going to be very windy. Um, that's going to make it feel much colder. Um, and then starting on, you know, middle of the week through kind of the end of the week, it's going to be, you know, kind of some rounds of rain here. So um, definitely impacting those, uh, you know, who are uh, homeless and everything. So definitely something to watch by the middle of the week. And the Weather Service is also predicting high winds, as you mentioned. What should people know about preparing for that? Starting especially um, in the mountains and in the deserts, it'll kind of start on Tuesday. And then by Tuesday night into Wednesday, it's going to be quite the windy and cold day um, for much of the region. And so, yeah, if you have any uh, items, property outside, definitely time to bring those in or secure those uh, to prepare for the wind. And then, of course, if you're driving, the... uh, you know, if you're out and about, especially the morning commute on Wednesday, it could be very windy and then there could be rain in the mix as well. So um, looking kind of dicey, especially by Wednesday. I mean, could we should we expect uh, maybe down power lines or trees toppling over because, you know, when the ground gets yeah, wet? Yeah, we've definitely seen that in previous events. So, you know, some of these trees aren't, you know, very strong. So um, especially toward the coastal areas, you know, we could see gusts of 45 to 50 miles an hour. So Um, That can definitely bring some um, power lines down, some trees down, definitely debris in the road. So those are definitely things you do want to be wary about if you're, you know, near your home or traveling. There's been a lot of focus lately on how much rain we'll see uh, when temperatures like this roll around. What can we expect? So really, this system is kind of going to drop from the south and kind of just rotate around here for much of the week. So Um, We're really going to see, you know, probably some lighter precipitation, maybe as early as Tuesday afternoon or evening, and then Wednesday, a little bit heavier, and then Thursday and Friday, especially, um, we could just see some, you know, some nice moderate rain through much of the day, off and on, you know, uh, cloudy, cold, and then rainy conditions. So, um, you know, it's really looking quite wet, and this system seems to be quite prolonged maybe even into the weekend we could see that rain kind of continuing so um you know there definitely may be some flooding impacts especially toward the end of the week we'll have to watch the san diego river and all of that as well but definitely um you know a couple inches of rain is definitely not out of the question here rain expected here snowfall is also expected in some parts of the county what can you tell us this system is a cold one so 
um, you know, we're really going to see those snow levels start to drop, um, you know, mainly areas um, above, you know, 3000 feet or so we're going to see those snow. So yeah, definitely if you're traveling along Interstate 8 in the mountains that will be impacted uh, starting late Tuesday night into Wednesday, and then kind of continuing through the week as well. But yeah, we could see, you know, inches of snow, Mount Laguna could see, you know, at least a couple feet in total when this is all said and done. So um, but yeah, Mount Laguna to Julian, all of it's looking quite snowy um, as we get toward the middle and latter part of the week. So definitely make sure you're uh, looking at, you know, the chain control restrictions and all of that um, with Caltrans and everything. This February has already been a notably cold one for San Diego. And you know what? Because it's all relative here. <laughs> so I'll say chilly. I'll call it chilly. It's been yes, a notably chilly, chilly one for San Diego. Why is that? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it's definitely um, been quite the quite the wintry season here. Temperature is well below average. And yeah, we kind of have, you know, we get this, you know, colder troughing pattern, we like to call it here in the West. And then if you have any friends back East, you know, I'm from Ohio. So, you know, my family's basking in the warmth, not a lot of snow. Florida's going to be in the 90s this week. So what goes, you know, up must come down. So uh, it's kind of the opposite effect out east. I've been speaking with Adam Roser, a meteorologist for the National Weather Service. Adam, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Now to an on-the-water field trip to Lake Tahoe. It's a year-round vacation destination for many Californians, and you might have noticed a bumper sticker around town that reads, Keep Tahoe Blue. Well, scientists and ecologists affiliated with UC Davis's Tahoe Environmental Research Center have been studying the lake, which is famous for its crystal clear water, for decades. Using both low and high tech devices, they are looking at everything from threats to Lake Tahoe's clarity from invasive species to the impact of smoke and ash from wildfires on the wider Tahoe Basin. The California Report host Saul Gonzalez takes us there. On a bitter cold winter morning, I'm aboard a small research boat traveling toward the middle of Lake Tahoe as choppy waters hit the hull. Brant Allen is the boat's captain and a Tahoe researcher. We're heading out to one of our four buoys that we share with NASA Jet Propulsion Lab. As we make our way across the largest alpine lake in North America, we seem to have it and the panoramic views of the surrounding mountains pretty much to ourselves. And I just noticed, I mean, I don't see any other vessel out on the water right now. That's the uh, second most beautiful thing about winter. You get to enjoy it all by yourself. What's the first? The snow on the mountains and the scenery. A couple of miles offshore, we reach our destination, one of four big research buoys in the lake. NASA's using these buoys to very accurately measure the surface temperature of Lake Tahoe from space. 
The satellite-connected buoys are some of the newest tools being used to monitor the health of the lake by UC Davis's Tahoe Environmental Research Center. Scientists with the center have been studying Lake Tahoe since the late 1960s. And it's field work that doesn't need to stop for winter, because Tahoe, with an average depth of 1,000 feet, never freezes over. Jeffrey Schlado is the research center's director. And because Lake Tahoe doesn't freeze, it is a year-round operation. We're out here 12 months a year, for some things, literally every week. Over the past half century of work, scientists have amassed huge amounts of data about Lake Tahoe's physics, chemistry, and biology. Schlato says because of factors like climate change and drought, he's seen big changes to the lake since he joined the research effort in the 1990s. Yeah, very different. And I know that it isn't just my eyes or my mind or imagination. I can go back and look at the data. What's changed? Uh, well, the, you know, the iconic thing that Tahoe is known for um, is its clarity. Exceptional water clarity is what gives the lake its striking cobalt blue sheen. And clarity is also seen as a marker of the lake's health, says Brant Allen. Yeah, kind of our general pattern is that our clearest water is in the wintertime. But Tahoe's clarity has diminished in recent decades, from 100 feet to about 60 to 70 feet. study changes to the lake's clarity, researchers regularly lower collection receptacles into the water to take samples of microscopic life called zooplankton. We're going to run our net down with the winch. A sample of Tahoe's water, collected more than 100 feet below the surface, looks like it's filled with bits of ground pepper, like paprika. Yes, that paprika is called diaptimus. It is one of our native zooplankton. Um, they have a red exoskeleton, carotenoids, like a, just like a lobster or a crayfish would. Maintaining a healthy population of this zooplankton is one key way to keep Tahoe's waters clear, says Alan. So the zooplankton, their food source is the algae that is out here in the lake. And algae is one of the factors that is clouding the lake and causing it to lose clarity. And these guys eat the algae. so. They are our natural lake cleaners that live out here in the water. The algae is an old threat to Lake Tahoe, but there's a big new one. Massive wildfires that have burned through the Tahoe Basin in recent years. Jeffrey Schlado says scientists are just starting to understand how smoke and soot from wildfires threaten both Lake Tahoe's ecology and the people who live in lakeside communities. The last few years with these mega fires we're having, visibility is terrible. Things are falling into the lake. And are there days where you're getting air pollution levels that are kind of equal to a big urban area on some days? Oh, worse. Worse? Oh, yeah. I I mean, air quality um, index values are five and 600. I mean, people are warned, don't go outside when it's 150. Decades into their work, researchers say there's still much more to be learned about Lake Tahoe and the risks it faces. Key to protecting Tahoe's health for future generations, says Schladau, is public education and support. After all, this lake is both a wilderness and a playground. We get something like 15 million visitors a year here. Uh, I mean, it's more than uh, Yosemite, Yellowstone, and Glacier combined. So it's, how do you, you can't really manage those people. We're not a national park where we can say you can't go here or there. This is, this is, public land, private land, people can do as they please. 
if they do things in a responsible way, then I'm sure we can preserve those essential features that the ecosystem needs to survive. Schladow and his team released an annual State of the Lake report. The next one will be out in the coming months. That story from the California Report host, Saul Gonzalez. The Oceanside International Film Festival returns this week to the Brooks Theater in Oceanside. There will be five days of film screenings and special events. Founded 12 years ago, the festival showcases shorts, documentaries, and feature films around the globe. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando previews the festival with its executive director, Lou Niles. Lou, you are on the eve of another Oceanside International Film Festival. And, you know, we're still dealing with pandemic issues and all that. So how does it feel to be back in person and running a festival? It's really great. I mean, last February, we're at the edge of a a new surge and thought we would have to cancel. And, And everybody turned up. It was really great last year. So we're really looking forward to no surges this time and uh, really having everybody back in person and doing our kind of grand opening world premiere events and after parties and things like that. One of the things I like about your festival is that it has a personality that you guys pick films that are important to you. So I want you to talk about your opening night film because you guys do love music as events and as topics for films. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've got so many years in the music business uh, in San Diego and L.A., a long history with local music. And so it's really exciting to present the world premiere of a film called I Am All Right, which has uh, a lot to do with mental well-being and the pressures of the music business, featuring a local legendary band called The Silent Comedy. It seems so simple when you're young and you start a band. We got swept up in this thing that had a mind of its own. From that point, things really accelerated. So it's exciting to present that for a couple different reasons because of uh, the silent comedy uh, being local legends and just some of them friends in the community. The drummer lives and works in Oceanside. And then the mental well-being aspect of it, the fact that years ago when they broke up and nobody heard why, not that it wasn't cool, but it wasn't okay, really, to talk about mental well-being and why, you know, they might never get a record deal again if they said, you know, hey, the pressure's melted me down. But now, with all the more open talk about mental well-being, it's really nice to be able to tell that story uh, and be open and honest about it, about what happened and uh, what, the, what the future holds now that everything has gotten better for them. We're going to have a Q&A afterwards um, and, and kind of open that discussion about those pressures and um, how the music industry can sometimes really want you to, they sign you, but then they want you to be someone else after they sign you. It's kind of crazy. And then Silent Comedy will perform a few songs semi-acoustically, Uh, with some special guests, local special guests. So it's going to be a really great uh, special event. And you also focus on a lot of short films and some local filmmakers. So tell us about the shorts program. Yeah, I mean, there's tons of shorts. I mean, we, we like it because there's so much creativity in, you know, knocking out a great story in a short amount of time. And then we also get to have more films from more places around the world 
in the festival. We do have a number of features this year, but we do focus a lot on, on these shorts. Um, Saturday is a great shorts program. I think you can see 13 films for one ticket price uh, starting at noon and going to almost 7 p.m. And then there's just great shorts we're sprinkled together to support the features each night, Wednesday, Thursday, and uh, even Friday night too. Now, we recently saw the official closing of the Ken Cinema, but you guys are actually going to be at a single screen venue up in Oceanside. So tell us a little bit about the Brooks Theater. I think we're really lucky here in Oceanside to have theaters like the Brooks Theater and the Oceanside Theater Company, a performing arts organization, the Star Theater, and um, that historic theater in the great space. So they have a lot of performing arts there too, but also have a screen. So um, it's just really neat. The Brooks is a historic and intimate environment. The Star a little bit bigger. They both have marquees, traditional marquees. That's super exciting to have the Oceanside International Film Festival name up there. We like to support the, the community, these historic theaters, and have everybody come to the theater, get that experience, have the Q&As, mingle with the filmmakers, the cast and crew, and just enjoy films from all over the world, and, and in fact, a lot of local filmmakers, too. And would you like to highlight any of the other feature films? I do. I have a few favorites. Um, Wednesday night, there's a, a feature, a narrative feature called Publisher Parish. And it's about a professor who's obsessed with uh, reaching tenure. You should know, not a big fan of tenure. Once you get tenure, it's nearly impossible to lose your job. Unless you do something really stupid. And then he accidentally kills a student. And the hilarity kind of snowballs, and it it gets even worse from there. Thursday night, there's a documentary called Jack Has a Plan, and it's about uh, a gentleman from San Francisco who has a terminal brain tumor, and he wants to film that story. You want the whole thing on tape? Yeah, completely. Why? That's insane. We all die at some point. It has to deal with knowing it's going to happen and how you live your life and how you try to accept that death is going to get you. I just got home one day after work and he was like, I quit my job. And he wants to end his life at a certain point. And so it's a, it's kind of a fascinating story. It's a, it's a lot more uplifting and amazing than you might think that type of uh, storyline exhibits. Um, and we'll have a Q&A after that with some uh, uh, end-of-life discussion uh, as well that'll be pretty fascinating and interesting. Um, and then Friday night, Big Wave Guardians is just amazing epic surf film about the, uh, the people that guard the North Shore and protect people's lives in some of the most dangerous waves of the world. When a surfer is knocked unconscious, you only have about four to six minutes before they run out of oxygen. Lifeguards, it's like a group of warriors. In a moment's notice, they'll put their life on the line to save a perfect stranger. I've had multiple friends smash their head into the reef and, you know, thank God the lifeguards were there. I don't think they would have made it. And you enjoy having surf films at the festival. That's part of the personality there. Yeah, it really is. I mean, like you said about the music, we always try to have something music related. We always try to have something surf and skate uh, related. We're light on skate this year. We didn't really get any films for that, but we've got a great full night of surf 
on Friday night that starts at 5 p.m. with one session that's uh, headlined by Sweet Adventure, which is an incredibly innovative uh, surf film with three shorts before it. And then the second uh, surf session is One Lost, Many Found, a wonderful story uh, short about a person who lost his father when he was young, uh, who was a shaper, um, and then just kind of wanted to check it out and look at some surfboards later on in life and found out how many people loved his father and how, much, how many people he impacted with his shaping uh, and who he was as a person. So it's a great story, and that one's tacked on to the Big Wave Guardian's uh, surf block. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about the Oceanside International Film Festival. Thank you so much for having us. We appreciate your support. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Lou Niles. The Oceanside International Film Festival runs tomorrow through Saturday at the Brooks Theater in Oceanside. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Anthony Doerr is the author of six books, including the Pulitzer Prize winner All the Light We Cannot See, which is being adapted for Netflix to be released later this year. His latest book, Cloud Cuckoo Land, is both historical fiction and speculative fiction spanning centuries in time, and it was a finalist for the National Book Award. Doerr spoke with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans in advance of his appearance at the Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University tomorrow. Hi, Anthony. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Julia. So your 2014 Pulitzer Prize winning novel, All the Light We Cannot See, is being adapted for a four-part Netflix series. What can you tell us about that project and, and how involved are you? It'll come out later this year. I don't have a date for anybody yet. And four episodes. The book was about 500 pages, and they've got it into four one-hour episodes. I think episode four might be a little longer than an hour. And yeah, it's exciting. I got to go to Budapest with my son and uh, got to see them making this thing. You know, see all these people employed because of something I made up in my basement was incredibly humbling. And to see the, you know, the costumes and the set design. Of course, you think as a novelist, you have to imagine every single corner of somebody's attic in 1939. But then when you see it come to life, you know, somebody's put details just in case the camera just grazes past it. Mark Ruffalo's in it and Hugh Laurie. And we found this amazing young actor to play Marie, who is blind. There's a young version of Marie who is eight and then an older version. Her name is Aria and she plays teenage Marie. And to see them with a blindness consultant working through this set. It's really moving. So yeah, I'm really hopeful. I hope it's a great show and I hope that people learn a lot about the power of radio during the Second World War and and also are entertained. And in the time since All the Light We Cannot See, you've written another book, Cloud Cuckoo Land, which came out in 2021. How was writing Cloud Cuckoo Land different from All the Light We Cannot See? Oh, gosh, in many ways, as you probably can guess, Julia, as a writer yourself, all the light we can see follows two characters, a German boy and a French girl. And although there are 
deviations, primarily the structure moves back and forth between the two, A, B, A, B, back and forth, kind of like a tennis match. This new book cloud, Cuckoo Land, has five protagonists. So it's more like a star shape than a, a line back and forth between two points. And there were a lot of plates to keep spinning. I set the book in the past and the present and the future. Uh, so it was this huge architectural challenge for me to build. And I was also paranoid and anxious the whole time that my reader might get confused as I'm moving back and forth from the 15th century to the 21st century in, into even into the future. But it was a ton of fun as well. You know, I got to learn a lot about the history of manuscripts. And uh, as much as I'm researching 15th century Constantinople, where about a third of the book is set, I'm also researching in the future and learning about the, the promises and the dangers of artificial intelligence, the threats of climate chaos. So there was always something really interesting to work on. And maybe similar to your job, I just felt like every day I was learning something, I was chasing my curiosities. And that's just an immense privilege of this profession. And you mentioned this this like star shape. When, when you're writing a character, how do you draw the web around that person to whom they're connected or or what decisions they will make that will then impact another storyline generations later or even things like what their obsessions and interests are can you talk about that that outlining process beginning writers of whatever age uh, try to dispel the notion that at least for me characters come to you fully formed you know it's not like lightning strikes and you're just sitting there listening to opera music typing out you know your inspiration for me they're just clunky creations that are this low accretion of days and days of thinking and work so you know i have these five young people in this novel and they don't come to me first all i know is that this book this old book this this what might be the very last copy of an old book called cloud cuckoo land is important to each of them and that each of them is an outsider in his or her own culture and time and it's only through time you know you sleep and you wake up that's the beauty of reading a book is that you get to read something and say three days or three nights that somebody worked years on masoning all this accumulation of observation and wisdom and thought and reflection and of course revision because lots of times you have a character do something you sleep and you reread it and you're like mm, she, i don't think she would do that and you claw that away and you know so i'm often writing you know even for say a 20 page short story i'll write 100 pages or something of prose just because you're you're chasing yourself you're trying dead end kind of moving through this this labyrinth this garden in the dark and you don't always know where you're going you know, as Americans, we're kind of taught to worship efficiency, and that can be challenging sometimes for me. I have to remember, like, this is not a straightforward A to B process. I'm often uh, just trying things, and then you sleep and read it over in the morning and think, ah, oh, that's not quite what I hope. But hopefully by taking that false start or that dead end or that wrong turn, you learn something. And from that little bit of failure, you can come back and say, okay, maybe she'll say this in this situation. And Cloud Cuckoo Land is, is such an ode to books and to libraries. Uh, I also recognize this in All the Light We Cannot See. What are you saying about the preservation of stories and of knowledge? Cloud Cuckoo Land uh, is a book inside of a book. And a lot of my earlier books, you're right, even in All the Light We Cannot See, I'm playing around with intertextuality in that novel. Mahri, this blind girl, is reading a braille copy of 20,000 Leaks Under the Sea. And I play with a few elements of that novel uh, inside my own novel. And in Cloud Cuckoo Land, I really blow up that idea of intertextuality. I invent 24 fragments of this lost book. There were novels, believe it or not, written in the ancient Greek world. We know of five 
full copies and we know the titles of about 20 lost books. And so I invented a lost book written by a novelist named Antonius Diogenes. All of his writing is lost, but he sounds like he was a really playful writer. He was uh, played with genre in interesting ways, played with metafiction, with kind of like a Nabokov or a Jorge Luis Borges of the ancient world, apparently. And so I wanted to see if I could invent something that he might have written. I put 24 pieces of that book, not the entire thing, but just a little sense of it uh, as folios into my book and have the characters read it, have it kind of tumble down the pegboard of time and drop into the laps of each of these five characters. I wanted to explore different ideas of stewardship as I get into my middle age, think about you know, what kind of world do we want to pass down to my kids? And as my kids get older, I, you know, it's in this great decentering that happens when you're in middle age. You realize, oh, maybe I'm not the center of the world. I think stewardship in a bunch of different ways has become important to me. Libraries, the way they steward culture is a huge element of the way I think and the way I'm grateful for all the privileges I've had in my life. And, and, and of course, in terms of the natural world, what, what kind of biodiversity, what kind of temperatures on this planet do we want to hand down to our kids? So I hope as the reader turns pages, she's not only entertained in Cloud Cuckoo Land, but she's also asking herself questions about stewardship. You know, what is it that lasts and what outlasts us? And isn't there something, instead of kind of frightening about it, it's kind of beautifully humbling. I think there's a great sweet humility and it helps me kind of accept my aging to think I'm just one link in this really long chain of human culture. What stories do we want to make sure that our kids are able to tell their kids? So in Cloud Cuckoo Land, there are so many worlds and in each there's this specificity of detail and intent. There's the walled city of Constantinople, the Argos, the libraries. I'm wondering what inspired each of these realms. I kind of envision uh, the structure of the book in, if in the most simple way is kind of spheres within spheres within spheres. So if you want to start in the past, the you know the siege of Constantinople, these wall, these city walls stand around the city. They stand for over a thousand years. They withstand 23 sieges successfully before the city is finally breached. And the libraries inside the city help be because of these walls helped preserve, you know, the cultural heritage of the ancient world, the Greek and Roman texts that were decaying in North Africa, across Europe, um, you know, really started to enter the Arab intellectual worlds and then the European intellectual world kind of formed the seeds of the Renaissance because of those copies preserved and copied over by hand inside the libraries of Constantinople. So I envision that kind of most basic way as a circle with this character, her name is Anna, trapped in the middle of this circle. And then I started to build each of the characters in their way, trapped with this book in their lap inside the center of a circle. So I have uh, in the present day, I have a rural library where in the state where I live here in Idaho, I try to play with these ideas of grand libraries and really humble libraries. This is just one that's a leaky library with three employees and they always, can't always get the heat to work. But uh, these kids are rehearsing a version of this really old story called Cloud Cuckoo Land with this elderly guy, a translator. And uh, there, there's a siege on that library, a kind of modern day. It'll be quite familiar to all of your listeners, of course, a modern day shooter incident. And then in the future, I have this girl trapped in a vault for reasons I probably shouldn't spoil, but she's got the book in her lap too. So I tried to start with that as my starting point. In, in the purest way, each of these characters is trapped in the book. This book in their lap, a silly old tale 
offers them a way to kind of transcend their circumstances, to slip the trap of their predicaments. And that's really what books have been for me in so many ways. They've helped me slip outside the walls of my own skull and enter the lives of other people. They're both an escape and this tunnel into another world. And, uh, you know, in many ways, the whole novel is an homage to that act, what reading can do for us. It can help us multiply our experiences of the world. And your characters deal with some of the things that dominate our present day headlines, disease, radicalization, war, technology, even AI and, and machines like like one called Sybil. Uh, how do you thread such conflicts and their impacts across this massive span of generations and centuries? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I tried to cram like all of my preoccupations into this novel. It really is, you know, at some point, the characters are even playfully calling this this other book, this book of everything. And in many ways, this novel was my book of everything. I was trying to you know, explore the fragility of memory uh, because my grandmother had Alzheimer's and I feel this kind of urgency to get these books out before, uh, you know, my cognition failed and, uh, you know, I'm not uh, no longer capable of building these complicated things. And I think I also was, you know, feeling this mortality thing ticking as my kids get older. They, you know, I have twin boys and they were 10 to 18 during the eight years that I wrote this book and, um, you know, watching this, you know, enormous amounts of change that the world's going through as they become teenagers and then a the pandemic hits. So, um, you know, I was reading about the possibility, strangely, I was reading about the possibility of viruses, uh, you know, leaving wild populations of animals and entering, you know, human cities uh, long before the, the coronavirus pandemic begins. So if there's even a pandemic in this novel. So yeah, and of course the cheapening of the natural world, you know, in my lifetime, we've lost, you know, something like 3 billion birds have disappeared from North America alone. So you know, what does it mean for this great quilt of interconnected life on this planet that we're stripping out so many creatures? And, uh, you know, what does it mean to have this kind of false dichotomy between the human and the natural worlds? And each of the characters, I think, kind of feels that. And I hope the reader feels the kind of the richness of the characters' interactions with animals in the 15th century and how uh, now uh, they're much more fraught and endangered in the present day. And then, of course, in the future, the really only experiences that this character Constance can have with wild creatures is they're all virtual, they're all built by this AI called Sybil. I also think that Cloud Cuckoo Land is the story, the celebration of rebellions many of them small and some of them pretty significant. Can you talk about the way you write some of your characters? Uh, you refer to them as outsiders, but I like to think of them as as rebels or underdogs. Every artist in some way is a rebel in her own right. And I think, uh, you know, even the way I think about, say, cliche or existing stories, you know, when I first write a sentence, I'm often, you know, immediately grasping for the habitual, I'm grasp, grasping for the words in combinations that are familiar to me. And it's only on revision you think, I need to rebel against those habits a little bit. I can't just say the sun glinted on the water because it's been said so many times that it won't feel quite clear to the reader. It's, you know, every cliche in a way is sort of a lie because they've been repeated so many times that they've lost their kind of impact. So there's always these tiny acts of rebellion, I think, as you're writing, because you're trying to think, how can I make this new? How can I kind of invert 
the precedents that have been set before me. And I think that's true in character creation too. I'm most interested in these characters who are able to recognize what's going on around them, what other people take for granted. And uh, they think, let me pay attention to that, maybe make it a little less familiar and see if I agree. And certainly Anna and Omir are, are quite different in their time in the 15th century. And then it takes Zeno, this older guy in the present, a long time, I think, to recognize his kind of place as a rebel. But he is quite a rebel, even though he's just helping these kids make this little silly play. It's kind of a really a wonderful, radical act that he's doing. And of course, he in the end of the book, he's helping keep them alive during the siege on the library. So you'll be speaking at the Writers' Symposium on Tuesday. There will be some writers and lots of readers in attendance. You've talked quite a bit about the, the books, and there's so much text in in this novel. I'm wondering if you can recall back to a time when you heard a writer that you admire speak and, and what you took away from that. Here's one because he just died last year, Barry Lopez, a wonderful writer from the Northwest where I live, uh, but of course a man of the world very much, moved around so much and saw so many things and, you know, spent time in the Arctic and the Antarctic um, and just a terrific essayist. He uh, came to Boise, where I live, and spoke at the Egyptian theater, which holds maybe seven or 800 people. And he created this essay, of course, just for this event, probably took him a month to write or longer. And he had this sparkle, you know, not going to get his age right. He was in his 60s when he spoke. And just this, the people who practice awe, who are able to find wonder in the world on a regular basis, always inspire me. And just seeing him talk reminded me kind of what motivated me to want to do this in the first place, to not kind of a sleepwalk through my life, to be able to practice observation of translating this huge, big, clattering, gleaming, pulsing thing that is the world and the language. Seeing Barry speak in person, uh, sometimes, you know, when you meet your heroes, they kind of disappoint you because they're human and they have bad breath or whatever, but he was just even better than I had dreamed. And it puts so much labor and kindness and generosity into that talk that it really reminded me like every day while you're here, while you are while you can, you know, try to bear witness to the grandeur of this special place before we're gone. Anthony, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks so much for having me, Julia. That was Anthony Dorr, author of Cloud Cuckoo Land and All the Light We Cannot See, speaking with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. Dorr will appear at the Writer's Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University at 7 p.m. Tuesday. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.